to Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Dave Richards, Executive Learning Strategist for Michigan Virtual. And Dave, on this edition of the show, we are going to talk to one of the top thought leaders on learning and the future of learning. You do not want to miss this conversation. Coming up next. Welcome to Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Dave Richards, Executive Learning Strategist for Michigan Virtual. And Dave, on this edition of the show, we are going to spend some time talking to a very special guest who has written several books, but he's got a new book that's coming out that is absolutely perfect for the times that we are living in right now. His name is Michael Horn. He is a senior strategist at Guild Education, among a bunch of other things. He's got tons of experience in this area. The name of the book coming out is From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child. It's coming out in July of 2022. And before we say hello to Michael Horn, Dave, tell our listeners just a little bit more about him. Thank you, Ann. I would say that uh, the opportunity to have Michael with us today is, is an absolute thrill for me um, as a professional educator and someone who has read several of his books over the years. Um, clearly one of the top thought leaders that we have in the country in regards to learning, the future of learning, and really helping districts to think through how do we design new models for students so that every child has the opportunity to be successful every day. Michael has had an extensive career um, around some of the top thought leaders in the country, including Clayton Christensen, um, including uh, professors and, and other authors and writers uh, from across the country. So we're thrilled to have Michael here with us um, and to really dig into his new book, um, which fits perfectly with the work that we're doing at Michigan Virtual, as well as with our, our Future of Learning Council um, as we look at how do we redesign learning coming out of the pandemic. And so, Michael, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us and to share your expertise and insights on this new book and uh, just what you're seeing post-pandemic in, in learning across the country. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you both. Michael, I wanted to start off with just really the why for you on writing this book. What, what was it that pr prompted you to put pencil to paper and to really help us think through a current environment? Yeah, you know, when the pandemic hit, obviously it challenged and shattered the lives of so many of us, uh, educators, students, parents, uh, you know, family members all around the country in a variety of ways. And uh, from my perspective, my work ramped up significantly because a lot of the things that I had been writing about around online learning and so forth, all of a sudden were in the forefront, right, of what people were grappling with and trying to adjust to. Uh, and I started a podcast during it with Diane Tavner, the uh, founder and CEO of Summit Public Schools, about how do we make sure that this moment wasn't just sort of a pause and retreat from schooling, but that we could use it as a launching pad to try to make some of the needed changes for which we and others had been advocating uh, for quite some time. Because I was hearing from a lot of educators that they just didn't want to return back to normal when schools uh, reopened. 
and go back to a system, you know, frankly, COVID was terrible. It was ill-serving so many of our nation's children, but our school system wasn't serving a lot of those same students particularly well beforehand either. And so the book came out of this desperate urge for me to write down really all the thoughts that I had and all the research that I had done over many years about what exactly should our schools look like and how would we reinvent them to serve each and every child well. Well, it's interesting, that sense of urgency that you had to write the book, um, are you seeing or hearing that from educators as well? Are, are, is there a, a collective gasp coming out of the pandemic about, we know we need to do something, but where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, Dave. It's, I think it's mixed. You know, frankly, I felt a lot of energy in the months after COVID first started, right, where educators were just heroic efforts to move schooling online and to move different formats and change schedules and a lot of energy around the logistics of schooling and a lot of educators that I talked to saying, now we can't go back to normal. We have to take what we're learning mm -hmm. and use it to fuel something different. I think, frankly, a lot of educators are just exhausted <laughs> right now. Uh, they've been through so much and parents now, all of the different preferences and needs that different family structures needed have come to the fore over the last many months. And I would argue those differences have always been there, but now families and parents feel very strongly about expressing those uh, in ways that, that I think are important, frankly, but are also challenging to educators in the traditional sort of one size fits all system. And that's created a lot of friction and exhaustion. And so my hope is that the sort of the parts of this book say, I know you're exhausted, but here are ways that you can carve out some separate areas where you can get the innovation started that you know and you want to do, but maybe you don't have the energy to, nor should you do all at once. And, mm -hmm. and hopefully give zones where they can get out of the food fights that are you know, across education right now to just carve out these places where they can do the innovation and start to help some students make some progress. It's interesting. We talk a lot of within the Future of Learning Council about the opportunity to have organized abandonment right now, where you're really intentional about what are some things that we need to stop doing to create space and time to do the things that we should be doing. Knowing what we know and, and understanding how this has shifted, that society has a very different ask of us as educators, as public school systems, um, as those that are our lead learners. Um, within your book, you state that the pandemic isn't just a threat. It has created an opportunity to have a conversation within individual communities to clarify the purpose of schooling. And I thought that was pretty powerful in, when you focus on purpose um, rather than just the role of schooling. There's a purpose to this work. Do you believe communities, as you mentioned, families are ready to have that conversation around purpose of schooling? I think they are, Dave, because at least in the conversations that I'm having and the conversations that I'm seeing play out, I think it comes out of a frustration that they're not quite sure why, you know, school exists the way it does, that they don't like some of the structures or some of the things that are taught. And my sense is that if we could go back to some first principles about what is the role of schooling in the community, we could help see much more clearly there's a lot of agreement, I suspect, in communities on what the purpose is. There are some zones of disagreement, but we could be clear about where they are and where they, importantly, are not. Because I think sometimes 
in a lot of these fractured conversations, we're assuming that certain people think certain things when, when they might not, in fact, hold certain views. Um, and I would say if we're going to redesign schooling to meet the needs of different kids and families, we need to start with that sense of shared purpose very mm -hmm. clearly codified because otherwise we're going to jump into the what before we've jumped into the why. And, and there's a lot of research that if, if we don't have that shared understanding of what, you know, the why, what we're trying to accomplish to jump into the structures and the things we're going to do in the, the textbooks or the, te you know, digital curriculum or whatever else that we might use, you know, people will start hanging on to those sorts of things as opposed to being able to return to a place of commonality and say, okay, this is why we're doing it. We share that value. You want to do it this way. I want to do it this way. That's an honest debate and conversation that I can ascribe good motivations to both folks and then design from there. But without a real sense of the value and the why, it's really hard to design something uh, productively or, frankly, to help people make progress with whatever you come out with on the other side. You know, it's interesting because there are so many, um, I think if you talk with leaders right now, it seems that they're all dealing with a political environment where so many issues are in front of them that they're having to deal with. With that in mind, it seems like all of them are wrestling with having clarity around their why and developing a shared vision within their school districts. What is our purpose as a school district? Are we making decisions that are truly in the best interest of kids? And I would ask you, Michael, as someone who travels the country, you work with a lot of different school districts, what are the indicators that you're seeing that districts are starting to turn to their communities to develop that shared vision? Yeah, I, I think you're seeing it in, in, in a number of ways. One, the conversations are naturally occurring, right, whether they like it or not. And so to create forums where it can productively happen, uh, I think is incredibly important and something that many, you know, the best education leaders are clearly understanding and, and starting to create forums for those conversations to intentionally happen and for them to listen also, right? I think listening is in, in a critical part of all this. And you've seen some big changes. You know, a lot of superintendents we know are leaving mm -hmm. the profession right now, but a lot of them are switching to other places. And as they come into those new communities, I sense that a lot of them want to have a conversation about why are we here uh, and, and start there. So I think there's some hopeful signs, even, you know, amidst uh, the, the challenges. And frankly, I think the fact that so many communities are so clued into, you know, masks or no masks, hybrid, in person, virtual, power of online, I hate technology, et cetera, to, you know, critical race theory to what are my kids taught, when are they taught it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, these are all indications that people are paying attention to their schools. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing, that they're caring about their children's, you know, futures. That's a good thing. And how can we take the good of that and maybe come up a level to where there's a lot more agreement, I suspect, on what we really want to get out of this enterprise uh, for the individuals, but also for the communities and country at large. Michael, transitioning from a traditional model of learning to one that is focused on mastery is, is pretty challenging for a lot of educators. The barriers and opportunities in making that type of a shift from a traditional model to this new model. It's almost as if the pandemic exposed it and now we have to figure out how do we rebuild it? And that's where I think the timing of your book is so valuable for the field as well. 
And let's take a quick break here. Michael Horn is our guest. He has a new book coming out from Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child. This important conversation will continue on Learning Matters in just a few minutes. are listening to Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. I'm Ann Thomas. I'm here with Dr. Dave Richards. Our guest today is Michael Horn, Senior Strategist at the Guild Education, at Guild Education. His book is From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child. It's coming out in July, a perfect book for the Times, Michael Horn. And Michael, I want to ask you, and I'd like Dave to chime in on this too, So you talk about the pandemic as kind of a jumping off point for change. What are some of the core underlying issues in education that needed to be changed? Yeah, I love the question, Anne. And it seems to me that there's a few of them. One, our system is a time-based one. So in essence, we group students by their age and we are set up to deliver the same learning at the same time to them, regardless of their background experiences, their background mastery, their different learning needs for any variety of reasons. And the challenge with that is predictably, we have some students who really master it and it's perfect for them. We have some students who have already learned these things and grow really bored and tend to dislike school. And we have a bunch of students that we focus a lot on for whom it just skates by and they don't like it at all because they just grow more and more bewildered and lost as they don't learn. And you think about that for the individuals in a knowledge economy today that prioritizes us having mastery of knowledge and skills, that's a mismatch. We're leaving a lot of human capital on the table. That's not good for the individuals. It's not good for their families. And it's not good for the country either. I would say the second thing is we have a very zero-sum mindset of our education system in the sense that for every winner, there's got to be a loser. You know, you get an A, I must get a C because we sort of have this curve mindset. There's a scarcity mindset instead of really how our society and capitalism function, which is a positive sum system, that the pie grows bigger as you succeed, which helps me succeed and we grow off each other. And then I guess, you know, there's a few more you could point to, but I'll just highlight two others quickly. One, the way we have crafted the teaching profession asks our teachers to be superheroes. It asks them to do everything from content delivery to lesson planning, to tutoring, to grading, to uh, serving as mentors, to helping with like the social uh, and emotional challenges our students bring to frankly, often thinking about like home life issues and food insecurity and stuff like that. That is untenable for any individual There are, you know, it's amazing. There are teachers that rise to the occasion, but it's not a tenable model. And I think this this model of having one individual work with many students and keeping them isolated from all the other adults uh, is an assumption that perhaps made sense at one time, but today it's gone through its paces, shall we say. And then the last one I'll just highlight is that our education system you know, Michigan actually has some highlights that go against the grain on this one, but uh, often assumes 
a particular school year from August uh, to uh, June, and then a big gap in there that parents have to scramble to fill for childcare. And frankly, very limited hours and very inflexible hours that for a working parent uh, or working parents with uh, perhaps sporadic schedules or schedules that are very fixed, but tend not to align to eight to three, uh, just create a, a whole host of challenges. And I think we've accepted that schooling has a custodial role, but I'm not sure we've designed schools uh, with that in mind in, a, in an intelligent way that works for the parents, students, or the educators themselves. And Dave, I see you're shaking your head in mm-hmm. agreement. I'm sure you want to add in on these thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of the challenge for me as a superintendent was realizing that every child walks through the hallway is very different. different. They're unique. And we've been challenged forever to differentiate, you know, to really address every child's learning needs. But until you tackle time, until you um, have learning become fixed and time the variable, and that includes looking at grade levels and the role of grade levels. Why do we have grade levels? Well, it's the year the child was born. It's not an indicator of where they're at academically. Michael could be much stronger than I am in English and language arts, but he has to wait for me. He has to sit in my cohort so that we can be in band together, so we can play football together, whatever that may be. But we know that that's not the best learning environment for that child. So until we get to the place where we realize that we have to create a system that allows every child to move based upon their own proficiency and their own ability to demonstrate proficiency in a variety of ways, we're going to have a system where we keep dragging the legacy model forward. And that takes a lot of cycles. It takes a lot of resources to keep both alive. And, and I think that that's where we're, we're getting to that aha moment right now, where at scale, we're starting to think about, you know, we can do this differently. And, and we'll talk with you, Michael, a little bit about that as well. Um, having district leaders gain that clarity on the design side. And one of the things I'd like to have you talk about is micro schools. Um, it's a concept I think that's growing across the country but it's something I wish I had known more about when I was a superintendent at the local level. Can you talk a little bit about microschools and how you're seeing that grow as an opportunity? Absolutely. You know, microschools were something that existed before the pandemic, uh, but the pandemic brought them into sharp relief into our homes and news cycles uh, as people frantically tried to pull together small groups of other families so that they could have some childcare while their kids would have some continuity of learning uh, as well. And there was a whole host of different ways to do micro schools or pandemic pods, they were sometimes called, or learning pods and the like. Uh, but I think the, the fundamental nature of it and what's consistent is it's a smaller group of students uh, who have some sort of personalized learning and often, but not always, mediated by technology in some uh, way, shape or form. And it's sort of some of the elements of homeschooling with its flexibility, uh, some uh, with you know some of the elements of the group and caring uh, and custodial care that we've come to take for granted prior to the pandemic uh, from schools and sort of mushing them up, if you will. And it was really a private school phenomenon, frankly, before uh, COVID hit. It was something that I thought was what I would call a disruptive trend uh, for independent schools uh, that were struggling. Uh, In particular, these micro schools were much lower cost. They were coming in uh, and I thought potentially could put out uh, a lot of private schools out of business. 
now they're all of a sudden part of the public education landscape as well. And we've seen many families in Detroit continue to have their own operated learning pods, for example, in micro schools. And we've seen some districts around the country say, hey, we think we can actually run these as well and create more personalized, smaller learning communities as well. And what's interesting is you're seeing it with pathways where districts like a Kettle Moraine in Wisconsin really has designed four high schools under the roof of one traditional brick and mortar school. Um, and they've done it with a micro school, um, but also by creating pathways where kids can go towards areas that they're passionate about in that learning. When you think about scalability, um, is that the distance that's shortest to look at a micro school versus I want to convert an entire 5,000 student district? Is it, does this allow you to innovate without the disruption? I think it does. And it's for the reason you just said, which is it doesn't require us to overthrow every single thing that uh, we've always done or to ask certain families that maybe don't buy into the particular micro school concept to change something that is anathema to uh, something they believe or something that works for their family. And third, it frankly recognizes that this isn't just true in education, by the way, in any venture, if you build something new from scratch that you've never done before, you are going to make mistakes and you are going to learn. And if to get it right, you're going to have to change and iterate and so forth. That's just the cycle of innovation that's required uh, to really get something of value that, that nails what, you know, the progress people want to make in their lives. And to ask an entire school at scale, an entire district at scale with several hundred thousand, many cases, students to flip essentially on a switch to something new, I think is unreasonable of anyone. Uh, it's going to naturally provoke a lot of fights and backlash and so forth. And the really neat thing about micro schools or schools within schools or whatever we want to call these smaller environments is that it gives a safe place to innovate with families, not on them, uh, and to make some small mistakes, but not some really large ones so that we don't blow through our political capital. Uh, or frankly, our you know money, right? The, the actual capital of dollars uh, in ways that are irresponsible and sort of get these reps in so we can try it and uh, figure out what works for students. Well, it's interesting. It's such a messy um, task to try to redesign learning because you're talking about humans. You're not talking about widgets and, and changing millimeters on a tool. This is, you know, impacts kids every day and staff members. I love the thought of the opt-in mindset where if you can design choices, it's almost the Burger King way, you know, have it your way. Um, if you can design options and people can opt in, you almost de-escalate the impact on your culture negatively. And, and I think, you know, what's that message, what's the advice you would give to leaders on how to um, have that clarity in such messy work, Michael? Yeah, I, I think that's the thing that we, you know, ditch the one size fits all mindset because it never worked for everyone. And now in a world where everyone realizes what their needs really are, it's really broken. And so instead embrace the fact that not only do kids, as you say, need personalized pathways through the learning, but the families do as well. And rather than fight that, if you can embrace it, then you can make sure that everyone benefits from it. And I think one of the big concerns, I'll name it, of micro schools has been, you know, the equity question. Will certain families get it and others won't? 
uh, because of difference in means. Well, guess what? If the district embraces it and says this isn't a means question, it's a fit question, right? Mm -hmm. Then I think you can make sure that everyone is benefiting uh, from these personalized opportunities and these innovations. And then you might have a variety of micro schools going on and some of them might converge and grow larger over time. Some of them might stay forever separate. And frankly, that could be a good thing rather than people opting out completely into a private school or homeschool uh, or micro school of their own uh, form formation uh, and, and keep that cohesiveness uh, around that a public school can provide. Michael Horn and Dave Richards, this idea makes complete sense. As a mother of four, each one learning differently over the years from grade school through high school, through college, through grad school. I mean, every child, each one from the same house learning differently. This is just an awesome idea. I think most parents would buy into it. I love the opt-in approach. In the next segment, I want to challenge both of you, though, and say, let's talk a little bit about this. How do we get started? Like, how do we get this going? So let's take a quick break. You are listening to Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. Back right after this. Dr. Dave Richards, really great conversation here today on Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. We're basically talking about reinventing learning and education. And I think it's a great idea, makes complete sense. But I want to challenge Michael Horn, senior strategist at Guild Education, author of a new book coming out from Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child, coming out July of 2022. I want to challenge you, Michael, and say these ideas are perfect. It's what every parent should want for their child. How do we get there? How do we take the first step? What do we do? Yeah, I think the first step is really creating a separate team that has the freedom to rethink this. And it can be a small team. It can be a couple educators and an administrator and even one parent, right? It doesn't have to be a gargantuan initiative. In fact, I would say don't make it a gargantuan initiative because that's going to invite a lot of blowback. Uh, and just have them start to sketch out, you know, What's that purpose that we talked about up front, right? What are we trying to achieve here in this small community? What might a, you know, a redesigned school day, school week, school month look like? What might a redesigned school calendar look like? What's going to actually happen? And put some ideas on paper in effect. And then rather than just go implement, say, okay, what are the assumptions? All the things that we've just assumed are hypotheses that we'll, we think will obviously work, but that if we're wrong about, it's gonna blow up and we're gonna get egg on our face. And let's just start testing the big ones, right? Let's just start doing some light tests. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. In California, uh, when the MOOCs, massive open online courses were first born, uh, the governor then, Jerry Brown, uh, got excited about it. And he made this huge announcement with Udacity, Sebastian Thrun, who was the founder of Udacity, uh, and he appeared up on the Capitol, I think it was, and they said, we're going to partner with San Jose State University, I think it was, and we are going to offer MOOCs free to all of these people who have never been able to complete and so forth. And this is going to redefine college completion and access, and it's going to be amazing. And 
it, I, it, I can't remember the price figure, but it was like a billion or $2 billion initiative. It was huge. Well, they didn't test some fundamental assumptions. Like the people we reach have internet at home. If you're taking an online course, turns out having internet is important. Or they have a computer. Turns out that's really easily testable, but they didn't test it. And so you go through the list of things they didn't test. And by the end, the completion rate was, let's say, you know, less than a quarter actually completed. I could have told you that in the beginning if they had just taken those big, gigantic assumptions and tested them up front. Do the same here. Just some small, quick tests. Revise your plan and then put it into action and start to continue to you know, evolve it. And start with 10 families then try to move to 20 and 30 and so forth. Grow as you have success, not grow just because, you know, you think it's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and I would just add to that. I, I think that one of the biggest challenges is understanding what the real problem is and, and having a clear understanding around the need to design through a systems lens and not just do it around pilots. As a superintendent, I never liked the word pilot because it, it sounded like we were experimenting. And rather, we were being intentional with our innovation. Our learning was what was driving our innovation within the district because we knew that we weren't reaching every child. How can we do that? Um, and, and I think that's a, a big part of developing a shared vision. And you can do it small and then let it grow out. You know, your board of education, I always say a lot, the care and feeding of the board for a superintendent has to be job number one so that the board knows there's no surprises. This is the work we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And there's going to be some challenges along the way because we're disrupting the system that many have felt very successful in. But there's a huge number of students that are not being successful in that environment. So we have to tackle that. Michael, one of the questions that I wonder about often is how do we bring students into that design part of the conversation to where kids are thinking about their opinions on how do they learn best? What would they like to see? You know, Anne mentioned for students at home in her home, how do, what does that look like to capture their voice? I love the question. I think there's a dual edged sword here, right? Which is sometimes uh, if you ask people to innovate themselves uh, for themselves, it's not their job. It's, it's our job as the educators uh, to figure out the innovation. So you don't want to put something on their back that's unfair. And secondly, when sometimes you ask a student, what would you like, you know, they don't know how big the box can expand <laughs> to be able to answer the question meaningfully. But if you can instead try to figure out what's the progress you're trying to make in your life as a student and start to sketch out, you know, when you decided to really dig deep into that project or that homework assignment, why was that? And why did you fire this one over here? Why did you decide to start skipping that class? What did you do instead? and start looking at the actual progress they are choosing to make in their lives and harness that, I think that is, you know, contains the code, if you will, uh, to innovating in schools and helping students get buy-in. The other half of the coin, I think, is this, which is I would argue we need to do a much better job in schools of helping students learn how they learn and developing agency. You know, I think there's a misconception in education that agency is just something you give. You give control to someone. It's actually something you build in someone so that they're capable of navigating and making these choices and trade-offs and decisions and so forth. And I think we need to be way more intentional about building agency in students 
so that we can ask them those questions. You know, Summit Public Schools started as they redesigned their school community completely. Uh, they started would would have focus groups where this, you know, they'd say, hey, we've been doing this for a week. What do you think of this, students? And, and then eventually the students started to, you know, they would see Diane Tabner in the hallway or whatever, and they'd pull her and say, we need to have a focus group right now because this thing you just implemented last week, it ain't working, but we have a better idea. And it wasn't just anger. It was like, how do we build on it? And then the student voice started to become part of the design process. But it was because I think they had intentionally cultivated and built these habits of success and this ability uh, to own uh, the learning process and be designers themselves. You know, that agile mindset, we see it a lot in the corporate environment because they're innovate, innovating to compete and to you know, generate profit and uh, be successful in front of their shareholders. Um, what advice would you have for leaders who um, maybe they're saying, you know what, I need to up my skills a little bit. I need some quality professional learning so that I can be successful as a leader in this new model going forward. It's a great question. I, I, I would say a couple things. One, I think, by the way, the other sort of interesting part of the pandemic is that now a lot of district leaders do realize that they're competing for students. Um, I think I would argue that they've always been competing in terms of time, their engagement and things like that. But now they're actually competing for them to attend their schools because now we see, I mean, so many districts right now are having declining numbers of students because their families are making other choices. So interestingly enough, there is a competition there, I would say. The, the, to your question of development, though, right, to build these skills and so mm -hmm. forth, there are so many great resources uh, out there. In Michigan, you have a great one. Bob Mesta, my uh, friend at the Rewired Group, does a lot about the jobs to be done thinking and how do you prototype once you understand the progress an individual is trying to make in a struggling uh, circumstance. I, I think learning from his body of work is, is really important and he's got some resources out there and classes and things of that nature. A lot of the folks around the design thinking from IDEO and some and places like that, you know, Stanford D School, there's a lot of resources online uh, around how do you do that. And I think stepping more and more into the shoes of a design thinker uh, and building to help people make progress uh, are really critical competencies to have as a leader uh, a, a, as we go forward. And not taking school uh, and the four walls and the time as the given that we've sort of assumed them to be, but instead say, hey, the pandemic just showed us that they aren't givens. And frankly, when we snap back to them, a lot of folks are dissatisfied with them. If we take a more blue sky approach, what else might we build? You know, it's interesting is a culture uh, is a big challenge for any leader, regardless of the organization that you're in. But as a superintendent, the risk issue really comes into play, especially with social media, where you're so vulnerable, you're so exposed, um, you're questioned on every decision, you know, that that you roll out, good or bad, there's somebody who disagrees with it in, in often instances. Um, how do you encourage a leader to take intentional risk in this effort in this work going forward? Yeah, I a, I think you're right. But B, I actually think you've said it earlier, which is, it's really really important to cultivate your school board and make sure that they have your backs so that they give you the room uh, to innovate and the time to innovate. Uh, we talk a lot in the book about what, what I call the tools of cooperation, how to make progress when different constituencies 
don't agree on the goals or don't agree on cause and effect that will achieve those goals and the different tools you can use as a leader uh, in those different circumstances. The thing I didn't write about, which I'm, has, has become clear to me since uh, putting the finishing touches on the book, uh, has been the element of time in that, that, you know, if, if, if you can migrate to a place where more and more people agree on both of those axes through the mechanism of being successful, right, of building success and getting more people to want to join and start to say, oh, well, this is the way we do schooling, that actually takes time. It's not something that occurs over one, two, or even three years. You really need to have time and the political uh, capital to know that you will be in this position for some time to see it through. And if you don't have that support and that foundation, I think it's awfully hard to make those enduring changes in strategy, vision, culture, uh, on and on and on, all the different levers that you need in the community to create a cohesive design that will ultimately develop every single student. Michael Horn, senior strategist at Guild Education, author of a book coming out in July called From Reopen to Reinvent, Recreating School for Every Child, one of the top thought leaders in the country on learning and the future of learning. Thank you so much for your time today. It was really nice to meet you. Well, it's been a blast uh, talking with you about these important issues. You've been listening to Learning Matters, brought to you by Michigan Virtual. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Dave Richards, I'm Ann Thomas. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.